Is God knowable? And if God is knowable, how do we know Him? Or to whom or through whom do we learn about God? Where do we go to find about God, about this Creator who has created us? Do we ask one another? Do we talk to the the birds, the trees? Do we look at the skies? What we want to think about this morning in our time together is this one overarching truth that God is knowable. That God has created this world to reveal His character in the things that are created and especially through His Word. And my hope this morning is to demonstrate to you through Psalm 19 how the revelation of God drives us to meditation on God. That knowledge leads to meditation. And meditation on God, as we think about God, meditate on His revealed character, both in creation and through His Word, that it then fuels our supplication to God, our worship. Our worship must be, as we heard earlier from Jesus' own lips, informed by truth. That we cannot approach God in worship apart from truth. And we've begun a series this summer through the Psalms, and I indicated this last week, and you might say, well, why are we jumping around? Well, I've, I've kind of shaped this series around what is known as the regulative principle. You may say, what is that? Well, the regulative principle is the doctrine that teaches that Scripture regulates worship. That every aspect of the corporate worship of the people of God has historically been regulated by the Bible. In other words, we do not approach worship apart from truth. And one of the aspects of our worship service, I don't know if you've paid much attention to it, is that it begins and it ends with Scripture. This is intentional. The the prelude, the announcements, that's all pre. Worship begins and ends with Scripture. What are we seeking to communicate with that? We're seeking to communicate that the Bible, that the truth revealed in Scripture regulates everything we do as a corporate body. And this is what Psalm 19 is seeking to communicate. Now the Psalms, just as a sense of context, if you weren't with us last week, just to speed you up a bit. The Psalter is a collection of 150 songs written by God's covenant people, the Israelites. These were either sung individually or sung corporately. 
And they cover a wide range of both human emotion and human experience as they seek to live in relationship with this Yahweh that has revealed Himself. This covenant-keeping God. And you can find throughout the Psalms joy and sadness. Anger and celebration. And over the summer, we're going to consider a variety of these and not be afraid of the more difficult psalms. The psalms that lament the suffering of this broken world. Or the psalms that cry out for God's judgment upon this wicked world. Last week we considered the first psalm, Psalm 1. In it the psalmist sets the stage for the rest of the Psalter. Exhorting God's people to choose which way they will live. Right out of the gate, you have a choice. You either you follow and obey the revealed will of God in the Scriptures, or you continue to live life your way. In other words, the Psalm 1 is like the prelude. Do I want to keep reading or not? Do I really care about God's Word or not? And if you conclude, hey, I'm going to go life my own way, I'm going to do this, then you, then you sort of stop there in Psalm 1 and you... You depart. But those who seek to have their life informed continue on. And in the same vein as Psalm 1 comes Psalm 19. A psalm of David. And in this psalm, the centrality of the Word of God among the people of God leads them to worship. In singing Psalm 19, God's people celebrate God's law known as the Torah. As the supreme revelation of Himself. The psalm recounts the way the creation speaks of its Maker. In verses 1-6. through And then, the way in which the Mosaic Law addresses the soul. And in the end, David, in response, humbly calls out for God's forgiveness. For his restoration and his acceptance. I invite you to turn to Psalm 19. If you are considering the admonition from last week to memorize Bible chapters, books, Psalm 19 is a wonderful place to start. C.S. Lewis says of Psalm 19, it is the pinnacle, the highest Example of the beauty of Hebrew poetry in all of the Bible. Let's consider it here. Psalm 19. To the choir master. A psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Knowledge leads to worship. Knowledge leads to worship. In this psalm, David teaches that the knowledge of God as revealed generally through creation, and especially through His Word, leads the covenant people of God to worship. Again, my hope this morning is to demonstrate to you this progression. How revelation of God leads to meditation on God that then fuels our supplication to God. This is the movement of the text. There is a general revelation that moves to then a more special or specific revelation. And this meditation, this rolling around in one's mind, the wonder and beauty of God is revealed through His Word that then concludes in supplication, prayer from the psalmist. And so we see that the psalmist leads us into worship in three ways. So if you take notes, there's three main points I want us to consider this morning. Number one, the psalmist leads us to worship God for His creation. The creation reveals the character of God. Secondly, He leads us to worship God for His Word. For His Word. We want to think about how creation and the Word are different forms of revelation. And lastly, the psalmist leads us to worship God for His salvation. As we'll see that only in God does salvation come. Number one, worship God for His creation. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6 speaks about God's revelation. These verses describe to us how the creation reveals the character and glory of its Maker. It invites the singer to join in with triumphant and wonderful song that creation sings of its creation, or Creator. Notice two aspects of creation here in these verses that bring God glory. Look with me here. First, verse 1 through the beginning of verse 4, 
the psalmist focuses on the sky above, the firmament, if you have a King James. The sky above proclaims His glory and majesty and wonder. And then, halfway through verse 4, we see that the psalmist turns his attention to the sun as a pinnacle example of God's transcendent power and glory and majesty. And while many aspects of creation, we learn in the Bible, reveals God's character, the psalmist here has our minds and our eyes upward, looking at the cloudless day and the cloudless night. Seeing the beauty and wonder that is in the sky above, and particularly at the sun. Notice first, the source of knowledge comes through creation. Look there verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The word that David uses here is a is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the sky above and day and night. The creation that we see around us has the fingerprint of God upon it such that it reveals His character. It speaks, though it does not use words. This is what theologians call the general revelation of God's character. Now to be clear, the Bible tells us that God does not reveal the gospel through creation. You cannot know God in a saving way through creation. You you can't stare at the skies or the stars or hug trees or anything else that you like to do in creation and there find a relationship with God. This is a limited knowledge, but it is not a diminished knowledge. It's a wonderful knowledge. Wayne Grudem says it this way, The knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law comes through creation to all humanity. Let me just consider for a moment. There's nowhere you can go in this world where the sky is not present. Or the sun doesn't touch. It's heat. Notice also that God's glory isn't going anywhere. Look at there, verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Whether you only experience day or whether you only experience night, either place you're going to receive this information, this communication from creation about God. From day to day and night to night. John Calvin says it this way, Scripture indeed makes known to us the time and manner of the creation, but the heavens themselves, although God should say nothing on the subject, proclaim loudly and distinctly enough that they have been fashioned by His hands. And this of itself abundantly suffices to bear testimony to men of His glory. As soon as we acknowledge God to be the supreme architect, 
who has erected the beauteous fabric of the universe, our minds must necessarily be ravished with wonder at His infinite goodness, wisdom, and power. God's creation reveals these aspects to us of His goodness, His wonder, and His power, His might. Who hasn't looked up at the stars at night and concluded that there must be this vast and powerful God to put all of this in place? Observe that this knowledge is not verbal. Notice here, verse 3. It's almost an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? He's talking about how it's declaring and proclaiming, and there's this speech, and there's this revelation. And then verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And you think, what does this mean? This is the beauty of creation. There is no barrier to this communication. Now, if you've ever traveled anywhere outside of your native-speaking country, America perhaps, or you grew up somewhere else, you know how difficult it is to communicate when you do not share a common language with the people. But like a painter painting a picture, a portrait, beautiful and exquisite, and you stare at that portrait and that painting, that person doesn't need to speak the same language as you in order to communicate to you through that painting. Consider how many uh, musical arrangements you've enjoyed that were written by people who don't speak your same language. Friend, this is the wonder and beauty of creation. It doesn't require you to learn English or French or German or Chinese in order for you to know and understand the one true and living God. God has revealed Himself in such a way, oh friend, that everyone is exposed to it. This is what then leads David on in this psalm. To, to consider in the grandeur and the glory of the revelation of the Son. You see, He's moving our minds in progression from this general knowledge that's going to get very, very specific very, very fast. He turns our attention to the Son. Because God's glory in creation has a universal reach. It has a universal reach. There is nowhere you can go where you are hidden from the sun. The sun, at various degrees, of course, y'all down here it's a little hotter. Up north it's a little colder. But nonetheless, the sun still touches it to some varying degree. In them he has set a tent for the sun. And in verse 5 he describes two Different pictures here. First, one of a bridegroom leaving its chamber. Uh, this is a, 
the groom leaving to go meet his bride. He leads out of that room glorious. He's excited to go see his bride. There's nothing that's going to get him off his path. He wants to see his bride on his wedding day because he, it is the treasure. And the sun goes about its course like a bridegroom undistracted, undeterred, nothing gets it off its kilter or off its track. Or in that second half of verse 5, like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. It's on a track and it follows that track time and time again. And over and over and over and over again. And notice here verse 6. As it goes on its course... There is nothing hidden from its heat. What does that mean? That there is no excuse for any man or woman to say they have no knowledge of their Creator. There is no excuse. Some might say, well, what about the man on that proverbial island stranded? He must be innocent. No, friend. He's seen the sun. And the sun will not set him free. The sun has condemned him. This is what Paul argues in Romans 1, verse 19. Listen to this. Romans 1, 19 and 20. Write it down. Think on this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. The them is a reference to sinners. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How has He shown it to them? Well, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse as sinners we suppress the truth about God's revelation of himself in creation we suppress the worship of God because we want to be worshiped we want to live life our way We want to do things the way we want to do them. But we are without excuse. God's glory and power and majesty has been revealed and it has invited us to worship Him, but we've rejected it. This is what Paul will use later in Romans chapter 10, verse 18 as a further argument that no man is without excuse when considering the gospel. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to the earth and their words to the end of the world. One commentator wrote this, Though all the preachers on earth should grow silent and every mouth cease from publishing the glory of God, the the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is an important argument for us to know and understand in the light of our impending explosion, implosion as a culture that is confused about basic biology. 
that's confused about basic aspects of human reproduction. We ought to see it for what it is. The suppression of the glory of God revealed through creation. That's all it is. It's this, it, it, what is meant to give God glory is being suppressed. That is what Satan desires. Brothers and sisters, we ought to see that creation reveals the glory of God. We ought to spend time looking at the sky above to see our smallness in light of His greatness. A number of years ago, some 15 years ago, my family and I were crushed under the recession of the mid-2000s. I had been laid off from work. We were drowning. And I remember one night in the midst of all that pressure, and no doubt many of you have been there, in financial difficulty, when life just seems to unravel and you don't know what to do. I remember going outside, just completely done with life and the world around me, and looking up at the stars in the sky, and being captivated by the vastness of it. And trust me, in this moment, I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking, you know, God, you're an amazing God, and I love you for bringing me to this really terrible place in life. But as I looked up and I considered the vastness of all of the stars that shone above, I had a, a feeling and palpable sense of my smallness and God's greatness. And I thought, how small my problems must really be when I consider the greatness and transcendence of the God who threw all of this up in the sky with a word. And how dare I doubt God's power and glory to get us through these difficulties. See, the creation was speaking of the glories of God. The heavens were proclaiming His handiwork. It was pointing me to worship. And friend, it ought to point you to worship as well. We ought to join in the triumphant and wonderful song that creation sings. But this knowledge, friend, is limited. It leads us then, as we see here in verses 7 through 9, to consider worship for His Word. Verses 7 through 11, rather, points to the Word of God as this revelation that has especially been given to His covenant people. It's insider language. God has given His Word to His people. He's not given it to everyone. They invite the singer to join in worship to the One who has revealed Himself through the Scriptures. Now I want you to notice something here between verse 1 and verse 7. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word there is El, E-L, in the transliteration. This is the generic term for God. Really, any God could have been claimed here. But we know this is the covenant-keeping God because David turns in verse 7 to call out the Lord, L-O-R-D. And you'll see in your Bible, it's all capitalized. 
And it's all capitalized because this is a special name of God. This is Yahweh. The one who revealed Himself to the nation of Israel through their forefather Abraham. Through the covenant given to Abraham. And then passed on down through the generation. David here recognizes the limitations of God's general revelation And thus he turns to the only one who can give salvation through his word. Now we don't have time to spend on every one of these, but I want you to just notice the structure. You'll notice here in verses 7 through 9 that David refers to the law through several nouns. Then there are several adjectives that David uses to describe the law. And then lastly, several verbs in the second half of each of these verses and each of these stanzas that demonstrate the benefits of the Word. Notice in verses 7 through 9 that each of the nouns that David uses points to the covenant relationship of God to His people. The law, verse 7. The testimony, verse 7. The precepts, verse 8. The commandments, verse 8. The fear, verse 9. The rules, verse 9. Each of these words are words that the Torah uses to describe itself. The Torah is the law, the first five books of your Bible. And each of these words is a revelationary word, a word that points to a relationship that had been forged by covenant with God. A covenant that was cut not through mutual parties, but by God. God signed, sealed, and delivered these covenants. And God's relationship to His people was through His Word. God communicated to His people. He didn't leave them to figure out how to follow Him, how to worship Him. He revealed His will to them through His Word. This is what we heard from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. That we do not follow cleverly devised myths, but we follow the Word of God spoken to us in the Scriptures. Notice each of the adjectives that that David uses to describe the character of God's Word. It's perfect, verse 7. It's sure, verse 7. It's right, verse 8. It's pure, verse 8. It's clean, meaning it's ceremonially clean. Verse 9, it's true. Oh friend, revel in these realities. It's a perfect treasure of divine truth. This is what we write in our statement of faith. It's perfect. It's, with, it's without error. It's sure. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. It's a sure word. It's, it's a dependable word. Friend, you can stake your eternal soul on these words. You can know that if I follow these words... I will not die in my sin, but will live forever through Christ. It's a sure word. It's a right word. When everybody's advice is going wrong, it's it's a right word. It's a pure word. Morally pure. 
leads a people to moral purity. It's a clean word. It's a, it's a word of a people that have been consecrated, set apart, different. It's a true word. Trustworthy word. We see also the benefits of the word, don't we? If all these things are true, then what effect does the word have upon human beings? Well, look at these verbs that he uses. In the second half of each stanza, there's a verb that begins it. It's ing, to to help the reader understand that this is a progressive transformation over time. It's not a it's not a one-time hit. Right? So this isn't like a drug you go take a you know one-time hit of and, and you're good to go for a lifetime. No, this is this is an ongoing activity of consumption that then results in ongoing activity, reviving. Making wise, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring, and altogether, that's an adverb, altogether righteous. Altogether, if we were to, if we were to combine them all together, all the words of the Scriptures it is righteous. These are the benefits of the Word. This is what Paul writes of the Scriptures in Second Timothy. As he writes to Timothy, he says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the Scripture, it's the means that God's given for spiritual renewal. You will not be renewed through nature hikes. You will not be renewed through meditating while you're fishing on the lake. You might think so, But that's not what the Bible says. No, no, no. The Word of God is what does the reviving of men's souls. All of these words drive at the fullness of God's Word and results in an abundant desire and craving for them. In other words, if verses 7 through 9 are totally true and trustworthy and you give yourself to them, what results? We'll look here at verse 9 and 10. Or verses 10 and 11, rather. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey. In other words, if you go all in and you say, all right, I'm going to see if this really works, what you will find is that you have found a treasure that is priceless. And you are willing to forsake even the most pure gold, the, the highest value gold in all the world, you will... You will forsake the the lottery winnings for for a page out of this book. And you'll say, oh, this is sufficient. I can be the poorest man or woman on this earth, but if I have the Word, I am the richest. Or as the psalmist in Psalm 19, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Friend, as I've asked you last week about that, I wonder that question still rattled in your mind. Has it been rolling in there? Do, do you really value the Word of God over the riches of men? You say, yes, I do. I love the Bible. Then why did you not read it this week? Well, 
Why wasn't it upon your mind and your lips? If you believe verse 7 and 9 are true, that all these wonderful things happen to you when you consume the Word, why did you forsake it, my friend? Why were all the delicacies of this world more delightful for you this week than this Word? This life-giving Word. You see also in verses 11, we we find that as we give ourselves to this Word, we are warned and we are greatly rewarded. These are the benefits of the Word. They both warn us and instruct us. They guard us, they keep us, they hem us in, and they bless us. Brothers and sisters, we ought to give ourselves. You know, David here offers a repetitive nature of of these words in the minds of the people in order to see the importance of meditating on the Word of God. And I, and I fear that why you struggle to read the Bible regularly is because it's become drudgery to you rather than delight. And it's drudgery, it's because of the way you approach the Bible. You don't meditate on the Bible. You, you, you've been taught so long ago that somehow you have to get from Genesis to Revelation in one year, and if you do that, God must be really, really impressed with you. Friend, that command is man's word, not God's word. There is no command in the Bible that says that you are a better Christian because you went through the whole Bible in a year. Now, if you do that, wonderful. I commend you to do it. Better yet would be to take a passage of Scripture and marinate in it. Let it massage your mind. Let it affect you. Let it arrest you. Let it change you. Let it beat you up all day. Let it make you new. Brothers and sisters, we have to come to the point where we read the Bible not merely for information, but for transformation. I fear many of us know a lot of facts about God, but do not know the one true and living God. You might be able to quote to me all these wonderful places in the nation of Israel where Jesus trampled on. And he walked down this road and that road and he went to this village and that village and this time and that time. Oh, this is wonderful. Friend, that does not a bit of good for you when you stand before the tribunal of God. You'll say, well, that's wonderful. You, you know all these historical facts about me. God is inviting you into a relationship. To a relationship, friend, that changes you. That doesn't seek to improve on you, but to make you new. Oh, friend, I pray you would spend time in both word and prayer as you seek to know God through His Word. Well, lastly and very quickly, uh, we see in these final verses, David leads us to reflect on what we've learned, both through creation and the Word. When one encounters the Almighty, it invokes a sense of trepidation and desire to be holy as He is holy. Thus, David leads the congregation to seek both forgiveness and refuge in their Redeemer. Who can discern his heirs? Oh, that's the question of the ages. Well-meaning people might say this to you. Well, I know my heart. 
I know your heart. That's wonderful. That's kind of new agey a little bit, I think. It's not biblical. Who can discern his errors? That's the biblical. What does that mean? I don't know my own heart. My heart is desperately wicked. No one can discern his own errors. He needs the Word to be a giant spotlight exposing our stupidity. This is what it does. This is perhaps why you don't read it. This is the nature of Scripture. You read it and you're like, mm, that's really hard. Ow, that hurt. Thank you. That was really painful. And this is why David cries out in two ways. Number one, verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Brothers and sisters, you know that you sin in ways you don't even realize? That I don't even realize? Hidden sins. We say things and do things that hurt people every day, that hurt God, that that rob Him of His glory, and they're hidden from our eyes. Unknown sin, David says. And then, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Even if hidden sins aren't bad, you know, you're being found guilty for something you didn't know you did wrong, the worst of the type might be the ones that you do intentionally. These are presumptuous sins. It's like, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. I don't care. You see, this this is how we are as sinners, isn't it? Ultimately here, David here's desire is for acceptance with God. He understands that he is a sinner in need of redemption. And so our passage here ends with this request for acceptance. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. In other words, David recognizes that salvation can come only through God and not through obedience. David is not exhorting us to mere obedience for salvation, but to rest on the one who is merciful and who can save. This is that covenantal language that he uses in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David was putting his trust in his promises, in God's promises, that Yahweh would be merciful and faithful to his people. Declaring that God was the rock and redeemer. That He was the voice of assurance and forgiveness. To receive the benefits of God's word, we have to trust in the promises of God. The plans that are laid out for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Consider this request for acceptance. Jesus was the only one ever acceptable and accepted by the Father. Yet he became unacceptable by becoming sin, so that by faith in him, we would be accepted. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this great salvation, we ought to worship the Lord for saving sinners like us. God has revealed himself in his word to be both rock and redeemer. Those who find refuge in him and salvation through the greater Son the sun in the sky, but the sun who died, the death we deserved. 
the one who's revealed himself as the Word made flesh. This greater Son has brought salvation to all who trust in him. And through his Word, we find new life in him. David concludes this prayer with this psalm, rather, with prayer, asking that God would accept him. I think verse 14 should be in our minds daily. Let my mouth, the things I say, and the things I say, I think about be acceptable. Friend, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Are the things I say and the things I think about acceptable to God? If Jesus were standing right beside us when he heard the things we say or the things we think, would we be acceptable? Let's pray we are. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray. We delight in your word. We delight in your revelation through creation. We worship you. We could spend all day thinking about the wonders and glories of God. Your glory and your wonder. But we are like the, like the servant Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he shall stand upon the earth. This is our hope. You are our rock and our Redeemer. Make us acceptable through faith in Christ. For your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.